Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, September 21st, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Why do we eat fish sticks? The story behind those viral annual 21st of September videos? How to get the mental health benefits of vacation anticipation without going on vacation? And one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's favorite teachers. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Have you ever thought about where fish sticks came from? Why do we eat fish sticks? Like, when you think about it, it's a bit weird. The Hustle calls it a quintessentially American invention, which I disagree with slightly, if only because I know the English are totally nuts about what they call fish fingers, but this quote still stands. Where else but in this nation could one freeze processed white fish into a brick, cut it up into deep friable strips, and then ship it to a landlocked region like Kansas for immediate consumption? End quote. I mean, fish sticks are pretty delicious, or at least I remember them being delicious. I'm pretty sure I haven't eaten one in at least 15 years. But when you take a step back, it is kind of weird that they exist at all and that we eat so many of them. 55 million pounds of them a year in the U.S., in fact. And it's even weirder when you consider that, historically, Americans didn't actually like fish all that much. The distaste dates all the way back to the arrival of Europeans in North America. Even though fish was a popular staple, at least for the working class in Europe, and fish became a huge part of the economy that drove colonists to continue taking over America, the colonists themselves actually looked down on it. Chef and author Barton Seaver told Splendid Table in 2018, quote, This starts off with a quote from William Bradford, the first governor of Plymouth Colony back in 1623. In a plaintive letter back home, he writes, If ye land afford you bread, and ye see yield you fish, rest you a while contented, God will one day afford you better fare. There was real trepidation, but also a bias against this, and despite the fact that we came here seeking religious freedom, we didn't necessarily bring with us a lot of religious tolerance. In the Catholic calendar, there was over 150 fast days that required the devout to abstain from meat. So seafood was first seen as a food of the Catholics, and from our Protestant beginnings, they were the others, end quote. You may have heard about how lobster, now seen as a bit of a fancy-pants indulgence, used to be considered barely eatable and was served only to incarcerated people and the lowest classes. And the disinterest in fish in general kept up. In 1910, the average American consumed just seven pounds of fish a year compared to 60 pounds each of pork and beef. But the long-standing distaste of fish in general wasn't just a cultural thing. There were logistical challenges, particularly with getting fish from the coasts to middle America. A bunch of different freezing methods were tried in the early 20th century, but most left the fish looking decidedly unappetizing once it hit the shops, if it even made it there fresh enough to be eaten at all. 
But things changed during and after World War II. Quoting The Hustle, During the wartime effort, meat producers shifted their focus to feeding soldiers. On the home front, legal restrictions and supply chain shortages meant that Americans had to ration their consumption of chicken, beef, and pork. But there was one meat product that couldn't travel well abroad, and that didn't face the same restrictions. Fish. Suddenly, fish was the only widely available protein. End quote. But fish distributors couldn't just fall back on the same maligned tactics of frozen fish that they'd been trying for decades. They needed something new that would appeal to the masses of fish haters. So they decided to cut the fish into strips, similar to Americans' beloved sausages and hot dogs, and also many years later, which inspired what may be one of my favorite titles to an academic paper I've ever seen, written by Paul Josephson in 2008, The Ocean's Hot Dog, The Development of the Fish Stick. I don't know why, I just can't get over calling fish sticks The Ocean's Hot Dog. But anyways, so seafood companies decided to try selling the fish in strips, but more than that, in 1953, three different companies had the exact same light bulb moment at the same time. They decided to dress the fish strips in breading. And thus, the birth of the fish stick, credited equally to Gorton's Fulham Brothers and Birdseye, the latter of whom is the one most responsible for taking the fish stick immediately over to England. But the fish stick didn't take off right away. It required some marketing magic. A few lies about being popular already when it wasn't really, some creative recipes in well-respected parents' magazines, and painting it as the most American food, a, quote, tribute to the ingenuity of the American businessman, end quote. And while all of that succeeded in popularizing the fish stick for the time, two things solidified them as an evergreen staple of American diets— First, the 1954 Salt-and-Stall-Kennedy Act, which provided subsidies to the U.S. fishing industry, and a strong push to get fish sticks in school cafeterias, not just ensuring big sales for the moment, but indoctrinating an entire generation into the normalcy of fish sticks as a legitimate meal option. It's the 21st night of September, and you know what that means— Time for another video from Demi Dijuibe, writer on The Late Late Show and The Good Place, podcast host of, among others, Gilmore Guys, and all-around genius comedian of slightly cynical internet joy and mischief, Demi Dijuibe has been posting increasingly epic videos every September 21st since 2016, in which he dances around to his own remix of Earth, Wind & Fire's September. The track changes a little each year. In 2018, he partnered with the West Los Angeles Children's Choir, and in 2019 with a mariachi band, Mariachi Asente. But the main gag is that the remix just repeats 21st of September over and over and over again. In 2016, it started with just a simple video of Dijuibe dancing in a t-shirt that said September 21st on the front and That's Today on the back. Over the years, it's evolved into high-production, one-shot takes with impressive feats of confetti, unexpected entrances, and simple but captivating camera tricks that kind of harken to an earlier era of amateur filmmaking. Also, every year, Dijuibe pulls out a different brass or woodwind instrument towards the end of the video, which then spurts out confetti on the last note. I don't want to give away this year's, but I will just say that my jaw dropped multiple times. 
As the videos have spread around more and more over the years, Jijuibe has used the platform to give back to particular causes, and this year is no different. He's asking people to donate to a fund that will be divided between Streetwatch LA, the Trans United Fund, Black Roots Alliance, and the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. Only if people raise $50,000 will he make another video next year, because the obligation to keep upping the ante every single year has become, as he said to Vulture, quote, kind of like a prison I've built myself. But seeing as he's almost halfway to his goal at the time of recording, with the video for this year only having been up an hour, I think we are definitely going to be seeing another video on September 21st, 2021. But if you haven't seen this year's yet or any of them before, there is a link to watch all five videos and the link to donate in the show notes. Earlier this summer, I talked about an interesting phenomenon about lockdown and the pandemic. One reason that this period of time is tough for us psychologically, even apart from the grief illness, and economical challenges that we're all facing to varying degrees, another reason is the sense of unknown. And I don't mean that in a huge existential way, that's an element too, of course, but even on a smaller scale, so many of our plans got cancelled. Trips, vacations we may have been looking forward to are suspended indefinitely, and with them, the feeling of vacation anticipation that helps many of us power through difficult times. Taisha Caldwell Harvey, a psychologist and chief executive of The Black Girl Doctor, told the LA Times, quote, We tend to use something to look forward to as part of our self-care routine. Now, because of the unpredictable nature of the pandemic, would-be travelers are stuck in a holding pattern. End quote. And quoting further from the LA Times, Some use travel as a way to disrupt anxiety and racing thoughts, both before and after the trip. You've never been to the Hawaiian Islands, and you try to predict what it's going to look like. That's the kind of soothing thought that puts you to sleep, said Tom Gilovich, a professor of psychology at Cornell University. And after your trip, you're able to compare your expectations to the reality you experienced, which can also feel gratifying, he added, end quote. Sometimes the planning and dreaming about an upcoming vacation is actually better than the trip itself. So with no more planning or anticipating to do, people have less positive, exciting things to fill their mind during tough times, of which they may be experiencing a lot more of than usual right now. But the good news is that there are some ways you can try to replicate this vacation anticipation even without a full-on trip. The first option is a day trip. You know, find a park or hiking trail within a reasonable distance that you could get to, enjoy, and come back in one day without having to worry about staying somewhere overnight. Be cognizant of all local COVID regulations, of course, but Gilovich says that even these smaller types of experiences can have the same anticipatory benefits of a larger-scale trip. Additionally, or alternatively, you can plan half-a-day staycation. Set aside four hours, order your favorite food, have a fun beverage, set aside your phone, and just ignore the world for a few hours while you listen to music or read or watch a movie. Whatever you want, just enjoy a few of your favorite things and set the doom scrolling and your responsibilities aside for a few hours. Beyond that, even just small moments that you can take for yourself throughout the day can help. Engaging in things that make you laugh having a small moment to treat yourself to your favorite snack or beverage. The key really is just having something good to look forward to, something that may require a little bit of planning and intention. 
So whatever you can squeeze in that can fulfill that will help you get back a little of that positive anticipation boost. And Caldwell Harvey has a note for people who may feel guilty about taking time for themselves or for a seemingly frivolous outing during this tough time. Quoting the LA Times, Caldwell Harvey says it's critical to find moments of joy amid stress and pain. This may even help you avoid developing mental health challenges later in life, she said. You're ensuring your health and the health of your family down the road by taking care of yourself today. End quote. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on Friday at the age of 87, leaving behind an incalculable legacy. People have been sharing stories, insights, and wisdom from Ginsburg all weekend, so I don't have much more to add, but I did want to leave you today with, in the spirit of this show, a bit of a fun fact. I only found out this weekend that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a student of Vladimir Nabokov, the Russian-American writer most famous for his controversial novel Lolita. Ginsburg took his European lit course at Cornell University back in the early 1950s, and she had this to say of her experience, quote, Vladimir Nabokov changed the way I read and the way I write. Words could paint pictures, I learned from him. Choosing the right word and in the right order, he illustrated, could make an enormous difference in conveying an image or an idea, end quote. It's always wild to me to hear about two people I'd never thought about in the same context turning out to be not just contemporaries, but actually having overlapped in their work. LitHub also points out that a Vladimir Nabokov style of writing might not have been the best for writing legal briefs, as Ginsburg would go on to do for much of her career. Quoting LitHub, she also mentioned another professor, Robert E. Cushman, who taught constitutional law and for whom she worked as a research assistant. Quoting Ginsburg here, in his gentle way, he suggested that my writing was a bit elaborate. I learned to cut out unnecessary adjectives and to make my compositions as spare as I could, end quote. I can't say I'm surprised if Nabokov was her undergraduate mentor, end quote. Ginsburg never kept in touch with Nabokov, saying that he went off to Switzerland to catch butterflies after the success of Lolita, and that he never lived to see her become a judge. But it is just interesting to think about the very talented people who have an impact on other very talented people. And more than that, the impact that teachers can have on their students for the rest of their lifetimes. Ginsburg also noted once how she can still hear some of the things Nabokov said, like reading the class passages of Dickinson's Bleak House. And I think most of us can relate to that. You know, hearing a teacher perhaps pronouncing a certain vocabulary word or instructing on one lesson or another that has turned out to be regularly useful in our adult lives. It's always nice remembering that even the legends among us, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, weren't just singular talents. They had teachers, mentors, families, and friends influencing them and helping them get to where they were going. And it's refreshing that Ginsburg, whether acknowledging how her husband cooked dinners at home or sharing the advice she received from her mother-in-law, never failed to acknowledge the people in her life who were a crucial part of her success and her happiness. So, quick update on those unopened wooden coffins they found last month in Saqqara. Now, they have found 14 more of them, making it one of the largest discoveries of its kind. Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities says they'll be holding a press conference in the coming days to reveal, quote, more secrets, whatever that might mean. 
So with that said, I'm gonna go buy enough frozen fish sticks to ride out the ten plagues that are sure to hit when those archaeologists open all those sarcophagi. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.